Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are Reconstructionists, and in that sense, we do things a little differently at Passover than other folks. For the most part, Reconstructionist, uh, the Reconstructionist Jewish calendar follows the rest of the Jewish world. Um, there are a couple of places where it is different. Kaplan and his students made the decision um, to go with the practice in, the, in Israel rather than in the diaspora. Because Israel was a state, because Israel was the Jewish state, I don't know if it's because they thought eventually all of the Jewish world would be following Israel in terms of its practice. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, and I, I, I'm admitting ignorance to what the underlying reason is. Um, but they decided not to do what Jews do in the diaspora, which is add an extra day to the festival. Because we lived so far from where the new moon would be declared in Israel, that we had to be sure we covered Yuntif so we didn't break Yuntif. Um, so it was always a little iffy. And then there was a period um, where uh, the enemy, the enemies of the Jews would light signal fires to throw the Jews off the signal fires lit from Israel to let everybody, all the outlying communities know that the new moon had been declared by the court. The new moon had to be declared. So already that's very Jewish, right? The new moon is the new moon people, right? It's in the sky, right? But it's very Jewish that the holiday can't start until the new moon is declared by the court. Well, Pesach is on the 14th day. So the full moon. So, but you count day 14 from the declaration of the new moon. So, so communities had to be notified that the Sanhedrin had declared the new moon and that was done by signal fires. So a couple of things, the signal fires, you could get the signal so late that you're actually in the next day. So your counting is off a little bit and or fake signal fires and or and or. So there was some doubt. And so an extra day was added in the diaspora to make sure nobody was breaking Yuntif as it was calculated in the land of Israel. All right. So that's why Pesach is eight days in the diaspora. But Kaplan and his students decided, like I said, that they were going to follow the practice in that's in the land of Israel. And so, um, so we do seven days as Reconstructionists. That's why we are doing Yisker tomorrow morning. We do Yisker on the last day of the festival. We do Yisker tomorrow, not Sunday. And it means we get to stop eating matzah 24 hours before the rest of the Jewish world. So that's one reason to become a Reconstructionist Jew if you're not already. Um, and so we... Uh, so we have a choice to read the Torah portion that's read on the last day of Pesach or the Torah portion that's read on the seventh day of Pesach. Um, and so we are today reading the Torah portion that's read on the seventh day of Pesach all, all across the Jewish world, not just in Reconstructionist Judaism. So sometimes it's like, okay, we're going to look at the last day reading because for us, this is the last day. Um, but we're going to look at seventh day Pesach and um, some commentary um, from Yitz Greenberg. And I'm trying to stay uh, true to my word. And so I've brought you some stuff from Nevi'im. I've brought you some stuff from the prophets that Yitz Greenberg quotes. 
Okay, so that was a lot. I, I get it. That was a lot. All right, so so we know the text. You know this text. This is a text we're very, very, very familiar with. So I don't want. We're not going to stay with the Torah text as long today, because we've already read it this year in the lectionary, and you know this text really well. And we just went through uh, on Pesach, right, the story again. So we are. We're going to look at it so that we know what we're talking about and remind ourselves of some of the language there. And then we're going to jump to um, to Yitz Greenberg, what he has to say about it, and then where he quotes the prophets. So let's start. We're starting at Bishalach. We're starting with the Torah portion. Um, it's not a shocking surprise that, this, that what we're going to be looking at is the text of the Exodus, right? Of going through the water, and then it closes with the song at the sea. We're not going to look at all of that. So, but let's remind ourselves of some of the language um, that's used when talking about um, the story of the Exodus. So when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of Philistines, although it was closer for God said the people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt, because this is a group of slaves. So God led the people round about by the way, by the way of the wilderness, the Midbar at the Sea of Reeds, um, which is Yam Suf in Hebrew, probably a loan word from Egyptian. Yamsuf. Now the Israelites went up armed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took with him the bones of Joseph, who had extracted an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will be sure to take notice of you. Then you shall carry up my bones from here with you. They set out from Sukkot and it camped at Etam at the edge of the wilderness. God went before them in a pillar of cloud by day to guide them along the way and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they may travel day and night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And God said to Moshe, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp before Pihahirot, what was the Hebrew? Pihahirot, between Migdol and the sea, before Baal you shall encamp facing it by the sea. And Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, they are astray in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. Then I will stiffen Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them that I may gain glory through Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Adonai. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his courtiers had a change of heart about the people and said, what is this we have done releasing Israel from our service? He ordered his chariot and took his men with him, 600 of his picked chariots and the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in all of them. God stiffened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he gave chase to the Israelites as the Israelites were departing defiantly, Yad Ramah, with a lifted hand. The Egyptians gave chase to them and all the chariot horses of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his warriors overtook them and camped by the sea near Piachirot before Baal And as Pharaoh drew near, the Israelites caught sight of the Egyptians advancing upon them and greatly frightened. The Israelites cried out to Yudhe Then, of course, what are they going to do? If they're really scared, what are they going to do? Turn on your leaders. And they said to Moses, was it for want of graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, taking us out of Egypt? Is this not the very thing we told you in Egypt, saying, let us be, and we will serve the Egyptians, for it is better to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness? We don't have that scene, by the way. This is what they're saying. We don't have that scene in Torah. But Moses said to the people, have no fear. 
stand by and witness the deliverance which Yudhei will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. God will battle for you. You hold your peace, meaning shut up. Then God said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. You all hear me preach this all the time at Michamocha, right? Tell the people to move forward. I can't do anything till the people move forward. I can't do anything till they go. Nothing. And lift up your rod and hold out your arm over the sea and split it so that the Israelites may march into the sea on dry ground. And I will stiffen the hearts of Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his warriors, his chariots and his horsemen. Let the Egyptians know that I am yod vav when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. This is George's favorite part of Torah is God gaining glory through killing the Egyptians. The angel of God who had been going ahead of the Israelite army now moved and followed behind them and the pillar of cloud shifted from in front of them and took a place behind them. And it came between the army of the Egyptians and the army of Israel. Thus there was the cloud with the darkness and it cast a spell upon the night so that one could not come near the other all through the night. Then Moses held out his arm over the sea and Yudhei drove back the sea with a strong east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry ground. The waters were split and the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians came and pursued after them into the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen. At the morning watch, Yudhei looked down upon the Egyptian army from a pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into panic. God locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty is the Hebrew, right? God is going to gain kavod. Here's the word. God's going to gain kavod by doing this. So the chariots get stuck in the mud and they are kaved. They're heavy. They're stuck. So it's, it's a word playing Hebrew that, of course, we miss in the English. Um, God's going to gain glory through this. And so that's what happens. The chariot wheels lock up. Um, so that they're moving with difficulty. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites for Yudhe is fighting for them against Egypt. Then God said to Moses, hold out your arm over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians and upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. Moses held out his arm over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal state and the Egyptians fled at its approach. But God hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus God delivered Israel that day from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea. And when Israel saw the wondrous power which Yudhei had wielded against the Egyptians, the people feared Yudhei and they had faith in Yudhei and his servant, Moses. Okay, that's what it takes, of course. Um, they had just turned on Moses, not seconds before, right? Like, was it for want of graves in Egypt, right, that you that you uh, brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Okay, so that is our, that is our narrative. Um, that is the story. That is what we reenact, right, at, at Pesach. That is... Um, a very familiar story to us. Um, if we look at it carefully, the, the Hebrew is there is a little confusing and tangled. We've talked about this before as being a literary device used by the authors um, of Torah to 
to convey a, an event that is spectacular and, and in some ways is ineffable. And it, it's hard to talk about logically because it, it, there's so much happening and it's this divine thing. So Sinai, remember the scene at Sinai? Moshe's up, then he's down, but then God says, go down, but he's already down, but then he's up. And, that, and so and it's very confusing. And it, it is similarly here. It's like, are they, if they're in the sea, but then the sea is going to blow slowly on them, but then they get, but then they get out, but God throws them back. But the, I mean, it's just, it's a very confusing um, scene, but it's written to be that way because it's supposed to be awe-inspiring and not normal and outside the normal realm of the laws of nature and how nature works. Um, so, um, Okay. So that's what we have. So this this is our one of our core, of course, narratives, one of our core stories. And we are, each of us, commanded in, in our tradition, and we read it in the Haggadah at Pesach, at Seder, that each of us must consider ourselves as if each one of us, ourselves, went out of Egypt. It is a very interesting practice to demand of every Jew and every generation of Jews that we are supposed to remember something that didn't happen to us as if it happened to us, right? In Western logical thinking, it's like, that's called delusional, right? Like Mark and George, you people would have to give me the technical language, but having a memory that doesn't belong to you and making it yours is not considered healthy in general, right? Um, uh, we're supposed to imagine ourselves, like if you want to succeed at something, you're supposed to imagine yourself succeeding at it. I get that. That's visioning forward, what's something you want to live into. But to have a memory and invoke a memory and convince yourself that it's your memory when it didn't happen to you is kind of odd for us as, as Western uh, peoples. It's not so odd for ancient peoples, uh, because it's it's partly about mythology, right? And one reads oneself and one's people into that mythology. But Judaism pushes it even further, pushes it even harder. You are to, you must consider yourself as if you yourself were there, were redeemed from slavery. And where else are we supposed to do that? What's another mythic moment we're supposed to do that? Sinai, Revelation. That is another place. Those of you who are here today and those of y'all who are not here today, the tradition reads as every Jew who would ever be a Jew, whether that's by birth, adoption, conversion, being drafted, whatever it is, however you were going to become a Jew, you were at Sinai and you signed on and you agreed and you said, we will do and then we'll hear about it. So these are two mythic moments where every Jew, according to our tradition, is supposed to read themselves into having been there, to having this memory. Yitz Greenberg um, wrote an article uh, about about this, and he says he understands the Exodus as what he calls an orienting event for the Jewish people. That this, this is an event that orients us in the world and it orients, orients us towards the past, and it orients us towards the future. Yitz Greenberg argues that the, the Israelite exodus is the paradigmatic experience that is going to happen for all people, 
in the future and all people will be delivered from servitude. All people will be delivered from suffering and oppression. All people will be delivered from war. All peoples will be free and all peoples will have their understanding of what is their way that they are called to live into the covenant with the divine that their people cuts with God. So there's, there's this, the, the Israelite exodus, but that's not where it's supposed to stop, according to many within our tradition and on the outside of our tradition, right? We know how exodus theology, um, liberation theology was adopted by many Christian uh, denominations. So it's not just within Judaism. This story continues to inspire theologies beyond Judaism uh, in terms of liberation theology. And so, um, so Yitz Greenberg is saying this is this is the Israelite experience that's in memory, um, and that we're living into the covenant that that was a result of this freedom to choose. Um, we're still living into that covenant, and we are working to move the world towards the messianic age that will be brought about by the liberation, the the exodus of all peoples from their suffering and their oppression. All right. He he needs evidence for that. If you're going to say within our tradition, who are you talking about? Right. So, um, so, so Yitz Greenberg is going to bring some folks uh, as proof. Okay. Judith, do you want to ask something before we go there? Is this further evidence of um, a situation you mentioned earlier with Noah, how every society, every religious organization or theory has a, a, water flood story everyone has a savior story everyone has this and that is this also part of the general religious community that every story has a a saving time when they're saved by their gods and so i mean i would argue yes for sure like because well when we talk about noah and that everyone has a flood story we're talking about everyone in ancient in the ancient Near East. Yes. That, 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 that's the culture we're talking about where it was universal for there to be a creation narrative, you know, something that explains ancient Near Eastern cosmology, something that talks about the flood, something that talks about, right? And so, and there's a hero who's associated with the flood story. So that, that is universal in the ancient Near East. So at that same time, when you, when you had a victory, in war, or if you overcame something, for sure, that was your God working on your behalf. Okay. Um, and so, like, we have in Egypt, you know, that Pharaoh battles, you know, people, there, there's even a, a steel, S-T-E-L-E, that people want to say, is this, is this battle? Um, but, uh, but yeah, so there, there's always, you know, glorifying the king, you know, and the gods favor the king who was victorious in war, for sure. Um, But if you're talking about, now we have to be careful with language. When you say people being saved, when we're talking about salvation, it becomes a very, right, becomes a very loaded loaded term, right? We talk about redemption, not salvation. We do have the word salvation, hoshia, hoshiana, save us. Um, But it's not it's not salvation as, as Christianity understands. Right. But right. this is true to the anthropological understanding of religious cultures in the area and in the time. That they would have attributed victories for sure right. to, to the okay. favor of their gods, favoring okay. them for sure. 
Lori, did you want to say something? I actually, my son and I were looking up Moses, and for some reason we were wondering how Islam views this story and found out that Moses is considered one of their top prophets. And when I looked it up, the, this whole story, exactly as you're, we're describing, is in the Quran. And at the end of the story, they basically, where we say, you know, we looked at Yahweh or who Adonai, they said Allah. But they didn't say they were Muslims. They said they acknowledged it was the Jews. So where, how does that fit in? I didn't really understand so how does all that work? I'll give a very short answer because it's a very long conversation. Um, it's about when are you talking, you know, which, which era of Muslim and which denomination of Islam are you talking about when you say, how do they view this? It's not they, they're the Umayyads, the, you know, they're, they're, there's a lot of long history of different, um, of different interpretations, right, of stuff. Um, but just in, in a nutshell, they, they understand that we are all derived from Avraham. They do see Moshe as a prophet, as a true prophet, right? Um, and they're not founded till like 900, right? When, you know, when Muhammad becomes, you know, they're who they recognize as a prophet. So they, they don't need those to be Muslims who are delivered. They are descended from, just as we are descended from, right? Um, um, but they, but from Abraham and, and they hundred percent accept Moshe as a prophet. Um, and we are the people of the book. They are the ones who named us the people of the book. Right. And that's part of the reason the Quran is written is right. Um, Islam appreciated the founders of Islam. Yeah. Appreciated what it meant for a people to be bound by a sacred text, to constantly reference a sacred story, a sacred text that has a prophet and that has that prophet help bring to the people the word of the one true God in terms of how they're supposed to live their lives. So the, it's not a mistake that a lot of what's in Torah is in the Quran. It, you know, it's not, uh, not a mistake. I don't mean that. It's not, um, what do you call it? An accident, whatever. Accident. Right. All right. So, so, so Yitz Greenberg wrote um, about seventh day Pesach, why we read this on, on seventh day Pesach is that he's talking in this article called the once and future Exodus, which of course, you know, we'll post um, Bert will post it if I remember to send it to him. Um, he usually has to text me all day. Um, the once and future Exodus. So the, the Exodus that happened that we read on Pesach, um, Yitz Greenberg wants to argue within the tradition and outside the tradition has been seen as the, the example of what the, um, what it's going to look like for the ultimate exile. And he, he brings three, um, he brings, oh, you already have the PDF, Bert. That's great. Three prophets who reference this, the first of which is Amos. So y'all have been asking me, who are they? When did they live? What's going on with the prophets? And why don't we know more about them? And all right, so, so here it is. Look what I did for you. Look what I did for you. The things I do for you. All right, people, here we go. So here are the prophets of Israel. So this gives you the name of the prophet. Who's the audience? Who are the kings who were ruling at the time? 
What are the approximate dates before the common era that they are preaching? And then what's going on when the prophet is preaching? What's happening, right? So when y'all ask me, who are the prophets? When did they live? Why don't we know them? Look at that list. That's why, <laughs> right? Like they're all in a different context. There's different stuff going on at the different times that they are uh, living and preaching and teaching and whatever. Okay. Can you put this on so we can uh, print that out? I'd like to look at that. So I will have Bert post it. Thank you. Um, so that you can then uh, download it and print it. And Judith, I know you're going to put it on your wall. Right? You're, <laughs> you're going to tape it up somewhere. <laughs> Where? On a ceiling. So the, so the first prophet he quotes is Amos, right? Amos is from Judah. Amos preaches in Israel. What does that mean? This is the divided monarchy. Amos is from Judah, but he goes and he starts yelling and screaming at the northern kingdom of Israel. Israel is powerful at this time and complacent. So Amos sees corruption. He sees Israel having a lot of wealth and being incredibly complacent and being incredibly unfair and unjust to the poor and has a lot to say about that. So much so that he gets chased out of Israel. Um, And some believe it is... Uh, it is the child uh, of Jeroboam that kills Amos because they don't like what he has to say. It's like not usually a very good idea to become a prophet in ancient Israel. It's it's not good for your health. <laughs> We're also going to see a little bit that he's going to bring from Isaiah. So when is Isaiah writing? He's writing and begins preaching just before the, the north the northern kingdom of Israel falls, but he's preaching to Judah. All right. The ruling class is mostly who he's talking to. His, so do you see Amos is from Judah and is, his audience is Israel. He's preaching and criticizing is, whoa, what I do? What did I do? Okay, sorry. Um, so Amos is from it, Judah, is preaching to Israel about their corruption Isaiah um, is preaching to Judah as Israel's about to fall, meaning don't be like them because Assyria is coming to kick their butt. And he's going to quote Jeremiah. Who is Jeremiah talking to? Judah, the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. In the last days of Judah, as already a series of deportations are happening in Judah. Okay, so those are our three guys that he's gonna, that um, Yitz Greenberg is going to quote and is going to look at. So he's talking about the uh, exodus from slavery to freedom being the central event of Jewish religion and liturgy, right? We celebrate it, reenact it at the Seder. Um, Some would understand Pesach as a one-time occurrence unique to the Bible, and some would see the event as an archetype repeated throughout history in order to uphold the message of liberation and human value inherent in it. And so then he's going to bring some uh, proof. As for the second question, uh, which is about being a universal story, already the prophet Amos 
makes clear in his vision that the Exodus is not just a Jewish affair. A time is coming, declares Yudhei Vafei, I can't be right, when the plowman shall meet the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who holds the bag of seed, when the mountains shall drip wine and all the hills shall wave with grain, I will restore my people Israel. They shall rebuild ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall till gardens and eat their fruits. And I will plant them upon their soil, never more to be uprooted from the soil I have given them, said the Lord your God. So this is about a universal understanding of bringing Israel back. Um, and the same is going to be said by Isaiah. Um, but he but he quotes almost when I can't, I don't know why I'm in the wrong place. But he he says that it's no different. The, the, I brought Israel out from Egypt the same way I did other peoples out of their captivity, out of uh, 9-7. Here it is. To me, O Israelites, you are just like the Ethiopians, declares Adonai. True, I brought Israel up from the land of Egypt, but also the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir. So so Amos here is saying that the, the Israelite experience of being brought up from Egypt is not unique. This is exactly what God did for the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from uh, Kir. So that this is that we are one of the exoduses, uh, but that this is this is how God works. God brings peoples up from where they are suffering and brings them into a place that is meant to be their land where they can live into their uh, unique destiny. This is what Yitz Greenberg is is arguing. And so he says, similarly, in almost a spirit, I would argue that the exodus is the initiation and the sign of the future coming of the total cosmic plan for universal freedom and human dignity, Uh right? So this is a a way to understand that our story is just the down payment, the initiation of what's going to be the cosmic plan for universal freedom and human dignity. And Yitz Greenberg believes this, by the way. So this is from deep within the tradition. Yitz Greenberg believes that, that one stage of the cosmic plan was Israel coming out of Egypt, getting the Torah at Sinai, living into that covenant and being an example of what's possible when one moves into redemptive, um, and in this case, salvific history. Okay, Um, but the plan is universal freedom and human dignity that all peoples will experience this on the question of repetition. The prophet Isaiah told of a future exodus for the Israelites that would be even more splendid than the original liberation. So so Isaiah is going to preach that Israel will be redeemed uh, and will experience a second uh, exodus that's going to be even bigger uh, and fancier than the original one. And that's Isaiah 52. Awake, O Zion, clothe yourself in splendor, put on your robes of majesty, Jerusalem, holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean shall never enter you again. Arise, shake off the dust, sit on your throne, Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive one, fair Zion. For thus says Yudhi, you were sold for no price and shall be redeemed without money. 
For thus said Yudhevathe, God of old, my people went down to Egypt to sojourn there, but Assyria has robbed them, giving them nothing in return. What therefore do I gain here, declares Yudhevathe, for my people has been carried off for nothing. Their mockers howl, declares God, and constantly, unceasingly, my name is reviled. Assuredly, my people shall learn my name. Assuredly, they shall learn on that day that I, the one who promised, am now at hand. How welcome on the mountain are the footsteps of the herald announcing happiness, good fortune, announcing victory, telling Zion, your God is king. And then he goes on to use this language of, uh, of, here we go. For you will not depart in haste. How did it happen in the first one? You remember Aviva Zorenberg? Remember how we really focused on eating that meal with your loins girded and they ate bechipazon. Remember this? We studied this word a lot, bechipazon, in pressure, in haste, in rushing. Bechipazon, stressed out. That's how they ate that meal and that's how they fled. So Isaiah's preaching that when Isaiah is brought back, when, when there's a second exodus, you will not depart, nor will you leave in flight. For Yudhe is marching before you. The God of Israel is your rear guard. We just read that language right in the Torah's version of this. Indeed, my servant shall prosper, be exalted, and raised to great heights. So this is Yeshayahu using that language of the Exodus, using um those uh, same uh, metaphors for uh, a liberation that was going to be even bigger than the uh, original one. All right. And then finally we have Jeremiah. Um, but, but, but he, in this article, one of the reasons I'm bringing you this article is because he's also answering some of the questions y'all had last time or the time before what happened to prophecy why did that stop? Why, who, who, how do you know somebody's a prophet? Then why'd they stop making prophets? And why do we not say anymore, here's a prophet and write their stuff down and say, let's study that in the part of the Bible called Nevi'im. What, what happened, right? So Yitz Greenberg actually talks about that in this article. So I'm like, okay, thank you, God, for just dropping something into my lap that, that answered some of this stuff uh, this week. All right. So, um, so Yitz Greenberg believes that, um, that there are stages of God's self-limiting. So in Kabbalah, we know that that term is tzimtzum, that that term is to, that God contracts God's self to leave room for humanity, to leave room for creation. Because if everything is God, if everything is God, there's no room for anything else. So God lovingly contracts God's self so that um, there's room for us to exist for creation to exist. Um, and when God does that, it leaves room for something that is not God. And this is part of how Kabbalah explains evil. How could there be evil if there's only God and God is everything and God is all good and God is all just and God is all whatever. How can there be evil? Well, it happened during Simpson. Right. But so that's Kabbalistic. We're not, we're not, I don't want to stay with Kabbalah. I want to go to Yitz Greenberg who says, God does tzimtzum several times in human history. One is so that the world can exist. That's the original one. But then God takes us out of Egypt. So God directly rescues the people. But that God does a tzimtzum at different points in human history 
so that God can give humans a greater role and responsibility in carrying out the covenant. All right. This is Yitz Greenberg's covenantal theology. I want to be very clear. This is not my theology. I'm not selling this. I am bringing you how some people within the tradition understand that there became an end to prophecy, like God used to talk to people and now God doesn't, that that, that, that the Shoah, the Holocaust could happen, you know, the, on and on and on and on and on. And this is one way that's not ultra-Orthodox that says God is punishing us for not keeping Shabbos and for having gay weddings. That is not why the Holocaust happened, right? That's one answer within the tradition. I'm trying to give you another more measured response from someone deep within the tradition, but that's not me either, right? I am what we might call left of Yitz Greenberg. He is a conservative rabbi um, teaching within the you know, conservative world. So what does he argue? He argues that there's been simtsum. God has withdrawn God's self from, from control of humans and human history as God gives humans more and more responsibility for carrying out the covenant. So what does that mean? That means no more revelations from heaven. So Yitz Greenberg believes in revelation at Sinai. Well, then how come God's not talking now? All right. So this is one of the way this school of thought deals with it. Well, because God stopped that. There's no more prophecy. God's sending a direct instruction to human beings. Thus saith the Lord came to an end after the destruction of the temple. Okay. This is his theology. What else does it mean? The age of visible miracles, like the splitting of the sea was over. Henceforth, there would only be hidden miracles in which God operates behind the scenes. Think the Purim story. God is not even mentioned in the Purim story, right? Um, But God is working, of course, behind the scenes. In the biblical era, God appeared mostly in protected special environments, such as the temple, with transcendent presence as an external force of explosive power, right? So Bible times, God is an external transcendent force that 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 but, but that is concentrated in protected special environments in the like the temple or the Mishkan. In the rabbinic era, God is presented as Shekhinah, a hidden, more tempered and maternal presence encountered in all walks of life and in the mundane. Think about the rabbis writing all those brachot. There's a blessing for when you go to the bathroom right? That you eliminated properly, that everything's working. There's a blessing when you wash your hands, there's a blessing and you have to wash your hands before you eat. And there's a blessing before you eat this and before you eat that and before you eat this and before you eat that. And then after you eat, there's another set, right? So that in the mundane, God's in the mundane for the rabbis to learn what God wants of us. Now, human judgment would be the source rabbis interpretations and rulings based on past revelations So do you see what Yitz Greenberg is saying here? God in the biblical period shows up kind of directly. For the rabbis, God has already done a sort of tzimtzum. There's no more revelation. There's no more talking on mountains. There's no more talking directly to human beings. For the rabbis, they understood that now in order to figure out what God wants, we look at past revelations and interpret it for our time. This is what the rabbis did. This was their job, right? 
And for some rabbis, it still is. How do you kosher a microwave? How do you know what God wants in terms of koshering a microwave? Well, you have to look back, right, at revelations past and what those rabbis interpreted that to mean and bring it and through the generations. And you keep going through that till you get to now. And what you think that means as a, as a learned uh, rabbi of, uh, of Jewish law. This included that the rabbis might well disagree on what God wants, right? If it's now left up to us to interpret, right, or not us, but the, the, the sages to interpret, then that meant they might disagree on what that, those past revelations mean. And such argumentation is a better source of truth. This, was, this is rabbinic theology, Rabbinic intelligence in applying inherited principles to the present situation was mediated by the intuition and practice of their living communities, right? So you had to have rabbinic intelligence in implying those inherited principles of the past to the present situation. And that is mediated by intuition and practice living in their communities, meaning what those communities actually need to live lives of holiness. Okay. Human behaviors and policy judgment would be more decisive in the outcome of military conflicts and political issues. This was unlike in the biblical period where if the Israelites were on God's side by not betraying the Torah with idol worship or sinful behavior, then God would assure them a victory even over mightier powers. Thus, according to the rabbis, both temples were destroyed due to Jewish sins. We know this. We've been over this a million, billion times, right? But in the first temple, the sins were cardinal sins against God, such as idolatry, whereas in the second temple, the sins were between people, including sinat chinam, which is baseless hatred, um, a, a vicious civil war, and reckless behavior in revolting against Rome. So this, so this is this understanding that God moves out of history uh, and does tzimtzum, and here's what he's going to preach about our era. I believe that in our era, we are living through a third stage of Jewish religion. So God is doing tzimtzum again. As in rabbinic times, the new stage of covenant is initiated by another divine self-limitation, tzimtzum. God becomes totally hidden. In our times, God is closer and more totally present, even than in shechina form. There are more miracles than ever. But they, like God, are more difficult to discern because they are hidden in the natural process. They occur through the operation of natural laws, such as technological wonders, as uncovered and applied entirely through human agents, God's partners in the covenant of tikkun olam. Again, God renews the covenant and relinquishes more control in order to call humans to take on full responsibility for realizing the covenant in the world. Do you hear how this allows for the Holocaust? How this allows for Vietnam? How this allows for the killing fields? How this allows for modern day slavery and human trafficking? This is how, because we've moved into a higher stage of the covenant a higher stage, which is where humans have full responsibility for realizing the covenant in the world. And that means full power to do the opposite, if we so choose. It does not mean God is less present, is what Yitz Greenberg is going to argue, as are all the folks right in that camp. God is not any less here or present. God is just hidden in the natural process and in the unfolding of human history. 
And he's going to say that the Exodus event for this era in Jewish history is, uh, of course, the uh, return to the land of Israel uh, and that that, that that is the Passover slash Exodus event for our time, is the founding of the land of Israel, a return to the Holy Land. Uh, and I want to be fair to him and give him the last word. One of the sad truths of our time is that the official religious authorities have been slow to recognize, let alone celebrate, the remarkable religious message in the Passover of our era. But to anyone who can see through the tribulations and denials and the flaws of the liberation process, the restoration and renaissance of the Jewish state is a sign for human beings everywhere that the promised future exodus for all of humanity is also coming. It is in human hands to take responsibility and make it happen. Because he argues that's how Israel happened, was that humans did it. Zionism, right? And, and the UN, that now everything is done by humans making it happen. So that's how Israel happened. And that's an example of what's going to happen in the future. It is in human hands to take responsibility and make it happen. By humanity's actions and policies, we can overcome poverty, oppression, and war, take the measure of sickness and affliction, and bring on the final tikkun olam for all. Covenantal theology through the lens of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. So, so, so he's suggesting that the covenant has different stages, and we're in a different stage of the covenant, a stage that God has done purposefully putting it in our hands entirely now in human hands. And we have the choice to either all of humanity, but the, but the Jews is, or, you know, the ones we're concerned about as rabbis, we have the choice to help contribute to the time when all peoples will be redeemed or not. Cause it is now all in humanity's hands. That is God living into the next iteration of the covenant. It is a more sophisticated set of responsibilities for us. And I think Yitz Greenberg would say that's a good thing. Um, I, I personally, you know the reason, I hope by now, the reason this is not my theology is because I'm like, well, that was a mistake. <laughs> like if God thought that was a good idea, that was a mistake, right? I believe it's the same God throughout history. It's the same relationship between us and divinity. Always, we've evolved and changed for sure. God evolves and changes through us because God is not separate from all of this. So God evolves and changes as we evolve and change and grow. I'm not suggesting there's not growth, um, but it's not like God makes a decision. Okay, now they're ready to do the whole thing themselves. And oops, 6 million, oops, they chose that. Oops, Hiroshima, oops. Like, I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't, I mean, it's just not, it's not my theology. It's not a theology that's comforting to me. It's not a God that makes me want to be closer to it. Um, it, it doesn't inspire me. Um, and in any way, I've, I think humanity has always had responsibility for taking, you know, what is godly and and making it happen in the world or not. Um, so, Susan, that's to your question. This is Greenberg's interpretation, not mine. We've always been responsible for that. We've always been searching for that. We, it evolves, you know, uh, Mordecai Kaplan, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Kaplanian. Judaism is an evolving religious civilization. The Jewish people have always been in conversation with the divine. And all we ever have is the human side of that conversation. We have it from Torah to now. Torah, Midrash, philosophy, right? Reconstructionist theology, whatever it is, we always have only the human side of that conversation. But it's an ongoing conversation. It's never stopped. 
Hopefully it gets more sophisticated as we do. I do agree with him that we need to take more responsibility, but that's because we know now how much responsibility we have for the planet, for climate change, for why food supply chains are keeping some people in starvation when we can in fact feed the entire world if we take that seriously. We know now that that's our responsibility. So I'm not saying it doesn't evolve and change and hopefully become more sophisticated, but it doesn't always, <laughs> you know, look at nationalism and, you know, whatever, right? So sometimes it doesn't evolve in, in, in a good way. Um, but I think that's always been the case and that will continue, God willing. And we and our responsibility is to contribute to that conversation. What only we can discern as being the truth of that conversation right now for our times. That's our job. That's our sacred obligation. And, and that's what we do by gathering, right, um, together. Do people have things they want to say? I just gave you a lot. I know. Kayla. Yeah, I'm definitely overloaded. But um, just listening to that sort of theology just made me think kind of like, what's the point of God? And if like if it's if it's so much on humans and I don't know, that just like it's kind of like exciting because like the hope in me is like we could do so much. But then it's also kind of like, <laughs> look at our history. <laughs> and then there kind of goes the hope. But um, it's, it's uh, I guess it works for him. So that that's good. So the question, if God has c- continued to withdraw mm-hmm. to give us more responsibility, what what's the point of God? Is that, yeah. is that what I heard you saying in terms of a response to this theology? Yeah. Um, so p- part of the point is, you know, God remains involved, uh, but through the natural processes, you know, through our ability to create new technologies that the miracle of nature that God is still inherently present in, mm-hmm. but has less direct impact on what humans decide to do or what's going to, the outcome of a war is not because God was on our side. In other words, Yitz Greenberg buys it from Torah. Okay. But he, be, he believes that we won that war because God was on our side. Oh, okay. Got it. You know what I'm saying? Like, but now, now you can't say we win or lose because God was on our side because God doesn't do that anymore. Right. And for me, it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's a nice way to not have to deal with like, stuff <laughs> you don't like or stuff you don't want is God doesn't do that anymore. You know, like, and, and I'm like, I just don't, I don't have a God that, that changes like that and says, okay, you know, now, now I'm going to step back and now I'm going to let them. Right. Okay. I mean, I get it that it works for him because it makes a lot of sense. If you're trying to make sense of the world and have a God who's all powerful, all knowing and all good, you have a couple of problems on your hand. Mm -hmm. So I understand why this is a really nice, neat solution. I do. I get it. And I get why it's tempting. I really do. And I really can't buy it. (laughs) Uh, Well, I I was taking notes, so I apologize, but (laughs) I, um, I was just thinking about that whole, that whole piece too, about is the, like what Michaela was saying that, you know, I really don't think that that whole notion of God being perfect is something I can subscribe to either. And it, in fact, we even get glimpses of it in Torah where God is jealous, you know, like when the golden calf is, is made and then God can become very vengeance when, you know, he starts smiting people. So it's like, God is, has never been perfect. So I just really don't understand 
that that concept of it. And then I was also when we were talking about how do we make that exodus ours as if we've lived it. And I don't think that it's perhaps it's not quite that literal. It's asking us to put ourselves in that place and um, and to create compassion for the suffering of, of others. And it fits into that tikkun olam where if you can imagine the suffering that our ancestors have gone through and what it took for them to uproot everything and leave. And then we have to be reflective then as well, if you're going to tap into, because I believe that as you know, that there, we are, we are responsible for those godlike qualities and making that happen in the earth, in the world around us. And so then, um, then what are we enslaved to and how does that prevent us from becoming more wholly human and compassionate and making a difference in the world and that's then it asks us to take on that responsibility and address our own enslavements and whatever so that we can make that world more of how we think that it should be or how that we're taught that it should be in that notion of you know, it's Sadaka and making equal. So those are my thoughts on that. So I, so you just answered your own question um, about, about what, what, are we really supposed to see ourselves as having gone forth from Egypt or, okay. Yeah. So that's what it means to understand oneself as having actually gone out of Egypt is exactly what you just said. What are we enslaved to? Right. And, and what is our path through the sea? And what are we moving towards, right? So that's exactly how they map we, how we map understanding ourselves as leaving Egypt onto what it means, right, to take responsibility, right? And if we're free, then we, then we ultimately have responsibility. We can't blame it on anybody else. We can't blame it on Pharaoh or the taskmasters or anybody else. It's on us. Alenu, right? We say it at the end of every service. Alenu, it's on us, um, and so, so I think you, you just answered it beautifully. And in terms of a perfect God, that God has never been perfect, they, they understood that as perfect. It's we who judge that as imperfect. God smites only when we screw up. God is perfect. If you got smitten, it's because you screwed up and you earned it and deserved it. Do you know what I'm saying? So we can judge that as an imperfect God. They did not. But I'm with you. Like, I, you know, that's why I can't take a lot of this literally is because it, really... Right. You know, like, or like Jody just said, you know, one football team wins. Uh, we, first, we want to thank God for our victory. <laughs> right. Like, and then where is forgiveness and compassion? If you end up getting smacked every time you screw up, it's like, so. Well, that's what Amy, that's what we want. What? That's not necessarily, that's not what God maybe wants. That's what, what we want. What? God wants, what are you talking about? The football analogy. I'm confused. So what, what are you saying? Tell me what you're saying. You said that we won the game. Um, that we say, thank you, God, that we won. Right. That means that God didn't want the other team to win. Right. He bet on, he bet, he bet that's, on the right That's team. our interpretation of what God wants. That, that doesn't mean it's true. Well, that's so what, what, what if God has nothing... What if God has nothing to do with that? That's the, that's, I mean, that's the most ridiculous notion to think. Yeah, it's the that's most ridiculous notion to think we, that. We, you know, we screw up and then we say God isn't perfect. What about the concept 
that God is perfect and all that he gave us, we make imperfect by the choices we make. Well, right. So that would be our theology that, that we, we screw it. We screw it up. Right. Creation. It doesn't mean he's not perfect. It's my, it means that what he gave us was, but we decided to screw it up. Freedom of choice. Okay. Alexandra. I think that we use, we, or I, people use God as, or this notion of God as it's not a scapegoat, but as <laughs> this, yeah, the, the, the like uh, the answer to anything that, you know, we see as either good, you know, binary, good or bad. And it just, it's so beyond that to me. Yeah. And, and to get, we get, I know I get stuck in that. Oh, if this happens, Oh, thank God, you know, or, but who's, you know, when you think of suffering and death, sickness, it probably has nothing to do with God. Right. I mean, and, and then, and it's our conditioning to think that if, you know, things that we have been conditioned to think of as bad or as, um, I guess mortal, right? These the you know mortality. Then God has something to do with it. I remember I was in eighth grade, and back in the day when there was only like four channels to watch. Um, so <laughs> it was a Friday night. We I was watching. Uh, I think it was is it twenty twenty uh, with a friend of mine, and it was just horrific story about Romanian orphans. And I ran upstairs from our basement. And my mom was like already you know sleeping and I like woke shook my mom like mom how could there possibly be a god if this happens and what about the holocaust and she had that simple answer too it's you know it's humans it's complacency it's humans that allow it to happen to other humans so that's what's you know although it's not comforting has given me comfort right so so the question for some of us not all of us but for some of us becomes all right so where's god in that Right. And for us, you know, godliness is what's important, not God. Right. And this is the other place we get stuck, I think, is, is God as a noun. For me, God is really not a noun. God is a verb. So I am godding when I watch that show and feel moved. I am godding when I then turn around and give tzedakah to that organization that's helping those Romanian orphans. I am godding when I make sure next day at lunch, if somebody's sitting by themselves, are they orphaned? Are they feeling lonely? And how can I alleviate that suffering? Right. So that, that that's godliness and that, that that's the goal is to draw that forward um, into every situation uh, that we find ourselves in. Okay. There's a lot of people with hands up. So Bob Ettinger, then Dana and Susan, Bob, go ahead. And Linda Scheibel. Amy, with the coming, yes, with the expectation of the coming of another exodus, um, it seems to me that, the elephant in the room is Israel and Israel's current political issues. Um, if we accept Israel as the, the next or the another uh, exodus, um, isn't it a bit problematic that they're having such political uh, issues that seem to be a, a counter to uh, so, so it kind of depends which which theological system you want me to answer from. For Yitz Greenberg, it's in our hands now. Like the, the, the exodus of our time, we arranged through Zionism and our courage and the partisans and fighting and whatever and the world community 
humans did that. That is the new redemption, the new, you know, now it's up to us what kind of a hash we make of what happens in Israel. Um, I'm more, I'm more interested. You're our rabbi. Um, (laughs) Last last I looked. So, right. So you would say that God's withdrawn from that. For me, um, if this is a, a return from exile, that is a fabulous thing. I think it is a wonderful thing that Jews have now been able to go to Israel from all of the places that, that they have been in danger. And we're making a serious mess of that opportunity. We're making a complete mess of that opportunity. And I'm not going to lie. I think it's a right now a disaster and um but 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 what else what what were our choices look at this country the last four years it was hard to wake up every day right in this country and call myself a patriotic american i have to admit that but it's like what's my choice do i work for biden harris you know do i work to support stacey abrams and and her work or do i give up and so that's the same way i feel in relationship to israel is it's it's we're part of that story. We have the we have the obligation, I believe, to bring what we can to that conversation. It's not we don't live there, so there's only so much we can do. But I think it is the project of the Jewish people of our time, and so we better take that seriously and bring to the to the conversation and support the pressures on Israeli uh, society makers um, that we believe are the right ones, and that and that's what I try to do and what we you know, it's, it strikes me um, in follow-up it strikes me that coming out of Egypt every few years the uh, Israelites would complain and would and and would take a step it's two step forward and one step back um, so it may very well be that Israel is paradigmatic of the um, uh, the uh, exodus from Israel and the people are two steps forward, one step back. Um, yeah. So thank you. That's if I, as I was raised, I would say from your mouth, right. To God's, <laughs> they would say in my family. All right. Um, Dana and Linda and Susan. I, I see that time is getting ahead. So I was, I was going to talk about godliness. I just wanted to say, if I ever say, thank God, it's my personal conversation. You know, I, I believe in godliness, not an anthropomorphic God. But when I say thank God, it's a reminder. It's a breath, a breath out that there's something greater than myself. Thank God I found my keys because I know the turmoil. It's, it's my personal prayer. It's probably the one most. So I just wanted to say that it's not about God controlling anything. It's my personal prayer with the godly spark within me to give me strength. Anyway, I just wanted to share. Nice. Thank you, Dana. Cause I, cause I feel really conflicted about saying, thank God. Like every time I say it, I'm like, Amy, God, you don't believe that. Linda. I don't no, I, Dana. I like that. I like that reconstructing of that, of that habit. Linda? That's what I was going to say. I and mean, it started, I mean, I've always thought of God as, the way I act or way people should act, the godliness within us to have us do things just as you've said. And I don't take the time to repeat it all, but it, I, that's how I was, what I was going to say as well. Thank you. Susan. Uh, I just want to thank you for introducing us to a reasonable and straightforward theology that has a way of accepting the Holocaust. I'm not sure 
it would be my theology. Mine's very convoluted. But the thinking had a clear, a crystal clear path that that coincided with everything. So thank you. So we're going to bring our time together to uh, a close. Um, thank you all for your, as always, your honesty, your vulnerability, your willingness to share and talk about stuff that you know, we don't tend to talk about in our culture. So um, I appreciate that. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.